0: Vayner Nation, what's good? Uh, with VCon going on this week, we're doing a couple of throwback podcasts because we are super head down at VCon. By the way, immediately, all of you listening, you need to get your act together. All of you need to be at VCon 2024 next year. Keep an eye on that. Go to vcon.co, vcon.co, to check out the speakers, what we're up to in Indianapolis this week. But now let's go to the throwback podcast. A lot of you missed these, so make sure you check it. This yes is the Gary V Audio Experience.
1: So, let's get started. You guys are so impactful. I love it. I want to talk about how you two got started. Um, during, well, got started with your Candy Digital and that concept. So, during the pandemic, you co-founded and collaborated on the All-In Challenge, which raised over $60 million for charity by auctioning off experiences with, with celebrities. How did working together... On all-in lead to Candy Digital.
2: Okay, so you know, from my perspective, Gary is always someone who's like seventeen steps ahead, and you know, this could be the first time I'm really giving him uh, public credit for it. But the whole trading card idea that Fanatics, you know, has built a pretty big business around, came from Gary hitting me over the head about seventeen thousand times, saying, um, "You need to be in trading cards. It's, it's the next big asset class. This is going to be gigantic." And when we did um, the all-in challenge together. Gary was talking to me about kind of, you know, where the NFT market could head. So Gary's a guy who I always value, that I have in my kind of orbit of seeing trends first, recognizing big opportunities. And, um, you know, I knew Gary pretty well going into the All-In Challenge, but the the 24-7 mentality that he brought toward doing whatever it took to you know, raising much money for people with food insecurity was amazing, and and it just made me love him even that much more. And we turned, obviously, doing something good for the world into creating a new business together.
0: You know, I think one of the unique things about Michael is there's very few people who have the combo of sizzle and steak. When you have charisma or energy or creativity, a lot of times the operational execution part doesn't come along with that and vice versa. And there are unique individuals that come along that can really combine the two. And, and the same thing for me, I had an incredible uh, point of view on who Michael was, but really having somebody actually keep up with me 24 hours a day felt so unique. And I was like, okay, this guy's on a, on a different plane altogether and you know, we were navigating our own businesses and our own family situations in COVID. And, Listen, co-founding is being incredibly kind. Michael called me and already had it baked and said, hey, do you want to help me with this? And I just remember that phone call because it was very early in the process and things were still very scary. And I was like, the humanity to try to help others while navigating the things he had to do really, really struck me and, and definitely changed our relationship.
1: I love that, and I, I love your comment about the sizzle with the operations. Because Michael, you have a long-standing relationship with MLB, and so as you as you were conceiving of Candy Digital, um, how which was announced in June 21, how uh, how how do you think first how that how that relationship with MLB is changing the way we think of baseball?
2: Well, first, I think you know relationships are everything, and you know in business you need to have both great strategy um and great relationships to make that strategy happen so you know we work with today close to a thousand um sports properties globally and and, you know baseball is an incredible partnership and i think you know what we saw was an amazing you know i think what gary saw and what gary helped me see quite honestly was an amazing um you know long-term opportunity but also one that would go through a lot of changes and so when we spoke to baseball the conversation was really about how do we build this the right way for the fan long term and i think you know the nft market really started really around the crypto community and what you know gary helped me understand and i think what we understood early was it was not only about the crypto community but it's really about how do we get billions of sports fans to engage with nfts and you know really engage with, with 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 incredible content that that all the sports properties possess long term and so baseball really wanted to build it the right way and what was terrific about the way we started the business they said look We want to do this with you. Make sure you take care of our fan. Make sure you build this the right way long-term. They were actually less worried about money knowing that they built this the right way. The dollars would follow. The most important thing for them was building it for the fan long-term.
1: And so, Gary, with all of your expertise, how did you help accelerate what, what Michael was thinking about and what Fanatics was thinking about with Candy Digital? Any specific examples? Yeah,
0: I mean, look. For everybody in the crowd, we're in this moment right now, 98% of NFT projects that are in the market right now are gonna go to zero or close to it. Like we're in a very unique time. This is very similar to internet public stocks in 1999 where the internet was right, but we all got ahead of ourselves and we put $40 billion valuations on companies that hadn't even sold anything on the internet yet. And it crashed in March and April of 2000. That's what's happening in the NFT world right now. There is so much money being thrown around, so much greed, sh- so much short term behavior that the, almost every project that we see out there, even if it's already done 10, 20 million dollars in sales, is incredibly vulnerable because the IP creator, the, the founders of these projects, are genuinely not building it with the long tail in mind. And so, you know, whether it was The way we thought about sweet futures, which is one of the things we do in Candy, which was, you know, with NIL changing the landscape, right, of college sports, we were able to really put together opportunities that for the fan that was buying the NFT, I think one thing that is completely being missed right now is in 20 years, people are going to care what the rookie NFT is. When's the first time this person showed up on the blockchain? No different than when was the first time that somebody showed up on a piece of cardboard or the first time they showed up in a comic book. And so a lot of what we've done at Candy is give a lot of strategies to how do we put people that we think will be long-term superstars on the blockchain first, and how do we structure the rarities What is the supply and demand? I mean, the reality is is it's the only thing that I'm paying attention to when I work with the team at Candy, which is, is this strategically set up to be a long-term win that creates secondary behaviors and value for the original buyers? Mm -hmm. And I think that it's all classic collectible supply and demand strategies of that nature, and so literally every launch.
2: You know, I want to go back to what he just said, because... I think Gary's 100% right um, to make a prediction, and Gary's often, uh, if you look at his predictions years later, um, they're often very accurate. To say 98% of the NFT projects are going to go to zero, it's you know I've been saying something very similar, which is there's going to be a giant crash in this market coming. And I actually love that Gary's talking about because you also need to look at just like the law of like logic, and you know today you have so much new content coming every day, and um, you know to me. Um, that's why, you know, Candy. What we've thought about is how do we build this the right way, the long, the you know, long term, the right way, and how do we make sure that we build great content for, for sports fans and great products that are going to increase in value for sports fans. And if you don't, I actually think uh, we're actually hurting the the, the, the the different sports properties we work with. We're hurting fans, and so. Um, but what Gary said, you know, I think it's going to be true. So. You know, today, when you look out at the market, so many people think this is just easy money, it's just gonna go up. And I think you're gonna find a lot of people, it's just gonna be like the internet crash that Gary talked about in 1999, or the financial crash that we went through in 2008. It's coming in the NFT market. There's no way with the amount of new content that's coming on that this can go straight up. It's And,
0: and, and I'm sorry to jump in, but I think the big thing for this crowd is understanding that that's when it gets interesting. <laughs> okay. Right? Definitely. Because, again, if you look, like, I think w- what's gonna happen is it's gonna crash, and the media is gonna have a field day. Told you, told you, told you, told you. You can read unlimited articles in the summer of 2000 saying we told you the internet was a fad, we told you. The reality is the consumer blockchain is the single biggest technology shift since the internet itself. It is that profound. Every ticket to every sporting event in a decade is going to be an NFT. The technology is too obvious, but the, ex- the macro is unbelievable the micro executions right now are cliche gold
2: rush and what we've generally seen at fanatics by the way is on the way up you build a lot of things organically on the way down you find ways to um add MA into kind of an accelerated building look we went through this even you know in covid we did so many things to you know accelerate our business because there were so many companies that weren't prepared to kind of live through COVID. and i think in every crash um, there's so many opportunities for you know good strong companies to have the right long-term vision. The most important thing is you get the strategy right. If you get the strategy right, um, you know then you can think more thoughtfully about the timing. And right now, um, there are a lot of things that don't make sense, but they don't make sense. You know you can be strategically right with your business plan, but that doesn't mean you act until you know things kind of come your way.
1: So two great points there. Let's talk about that strategy. And I think I want to highlight Gary what you did with V Friends, and um, which has been massively successful. For those of you who don't know. Um, right now, there was uh, one that was auctioned for as high as $1.2 million, uh, And the lowest current value of of, it is, of one is 30 k So what did you do to bring branding and generate over $91 million in the first 90 days? And then I do want to come back to blockchain, but I want to start with some of those strategies. Well,
0: the thing that is most fascinating to me about the blockchain, and, when, and a lot of my friends reached out to me when I went so hard, and they're like, man, I've watched you for 15 years leave so much money on the table to preserve your reputation. Why are you ruining it now? Basically is what they were saying. You're doing something so high risk. And and I said to them, I said, you don't understand the blockchain. It's actually the reverse. If you are the creator of a project, an NFT project, you're actually more in control than anything that has ever happened before. Let me explain. With vFriends, first I used the utility of the smart contract to create a three-year promise contract of a conference called VCon that I'm doing at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minnesota in May, which, you know, it's it's a profound lineup of every of the who's who. Michael's even coming, and I don't think he's ever been to Minnesota. And so, like, you know, it's you know, it's, it,
2: it, it is cold there. I
0: am aware. You it
2: it's in the May. Spring.
0: Thank you. Um, the you know, and so first, I think people are not using the utility aspect of NFTs enough right now. Right now, we're in the Art and collectible phase, no different than the internet in 94. We were in the information age, right? The internet's awesome for information. The internet was awesome for information. It was also gonna do so many more things in our society. The blockchain right now is on art and collectibles, but it's a contract. And so I I did a three-year conference. I did a lot of access tokens um, where Zooms, like information, things that people actually value besides the collectible, but the part that I was referring to earlier, and this is why I wanted to be in business, you know, Candy's really the only other major thing I'm really involved in, mm-hmm. is that I knew how Michael thought about the consumer. Let me just paint the picture for everybody who's hesitant to do an NFT project because they actually are good people and they fear that the value goes down. With with Candy, with Friends, if... God forbid the market crashes. And, you know, it's one thing for all the people that spent $2,000 for it last May and are selling it for 30, 40, 70, 100,000. They did great. But what about the guy or girl who bought it today for 40,000 and the market goes to 8,000? For me, because it's on the blockchain, I can provide more value for that person. You're the central bank. You're the country. You're in control. So I just, you know, I've been telling a lot of my friends who I think have. Not the best behavior in mind, who are going to be like, well, they made it, you know, they bought it. They took a risk. I'm like, it works a little bit different. You're in control of that economy and your reputation is completely tied in. So I think for the people that have good intent and have resources and are smart, for me, I take a lot of USD off the table with my project and put it in one place just for the rainy day so I can deploy that capital back to the people that own vFriends. And I think the best
1: projects will do that. And you, just for the audience, you use the word utility. Yes. And that means that there's something of value that you're creating that is going with the NFT, so access or...
0: The sporting ticket is the ticket, but the, but the utility is getting into the venue, but exactly. God willing, somebody drops 100 points that night and, and ties Will Chamberlain. That becomes an instant asset.
2: Right. And even when you, when, you, when you take that to candy, and Gar- Gary has had... Huge influence to the products that are created at Candy. You know, I sat in a meeting with Gary a few months ago, and you know, in two seconds, Gary comes up with an idea. Okay, we're going to do, you know, a new collection of rookie products, and in these rookie products, we're going to have, um, you know, FaceTimes available with, you know, all of the one-on-ones, or you know, and, and look, in sports, you have the ability to create, and really, I think in many places, you have the ability to create great. Uh, experiential value, and that's what Gary's talking about, and I think we have a great opportunity to do that as well, and I think, you know, to Gary's point, he's always thinking about how to create something that's got real value versus, there are a lot of people who just, like, you know, they're kind of, you know, fast and loose and trying to make a quick buck, they're not thinking about, you know, how does this play long-term, and certainly for a company like Fanatics, it's, you know, you know getting to be a decent-sized company, you know, <laughs> we, we, you know, we think about, you know, most importantly, how do we do the right thing for the sports fan long term. We want to have billions of fans that look at Fanatics as a beloved company. And everything that we do needs to create a great experience for them. If it doesn't, it actually hurts our brand. And so, and we don't do everything right by the way. We screw things up every day, but you know, we think about most importantly, like how do we have billions of fans that look at Fanatics as, as a beloved company where they get most of their dig- digital products from us. And so, you know, with candy, we need to create, you know, not only great product, but we need to figure out all the things we can do to enhance that product.
0: And you have to think long term. For all the people that are deeper into this space, You go into the discords where these communities live with these projects, every day everyone's like, what about the floor price? Make the floor price go up. Everyone is such a day trader right now. I see a lot of founders succumbing to the energy of their discord. Their discord isn't a community. Their discord are day traders who want to make a quick dollar. And you know, I think what I'm really proud of with BeFriends and with Candy is, listen, we care deeply about what everybody who's holding an NFT thinks. But like a parent, we're willing to do the short-term unpopular for the long-term win.
1: So I'm going to switch off of uh, uh, NFTs, cryptos, and blockchain. I want to talk about analytics. And I'm going to start with you, um, Gary. I said I'd been listening to your book on audio, and obviously analytics is core to what we do. But um, well, you started your, the book, just, and I thought it was amazing. I shared it with my children and my wife, but you said... Um, facts about gratitude to help us feel. So, 728 million people in the world do not have drinking water. 60% of people in the world don't have a toilet that manages human waste. And so data is big in what you do. You're helping all of us think like that. From an analytical perspective, can you share how you and your team over the last decade um, have used social content and constantly evolve your strategy? And maybe one specific example that will resonate for people.
0: You know, it's funny, obviously, being in the epicenter at this event, I have historically been a much more passionate qual data guy than quant data guy. But you use data a lot. I use data every second, right? And I think that you know, for me, even going back to launching an e-commerce wine business in 1996, I remember talking about making mistakes. I was innovating, op, you know, shopping cart, abandonment, and all these things just naturally because I just wanted people to buy the wine. Uh, that went on to become the industry standard practices. I wish i built some SaaS businesses around my behavior. I could have done well. But, you know, I think... You're doing th- okay. Well hang in. I think the reality is, is that um, I look at it every day. I mean, for example, I'll give you an example of how we think about it in the last decade. One of the things that I'm very proud of is I believe that I have day traded the public's attention extremely well over the last decade. Mm. Um, I feel that on a daily basis, my number one objective before I fill that bucket uh, with whatever I'm passionate about is where are all of their eyes and ears every second. And that comes through analytics. For me... My, my North Star being everyone's attention allows me three and a half years ago to tell everybody in my companies and every business that I'm associated with that we have to get very serious about TikTok. It's not because I'm guessing, it's because the math is very clear. I can see that people are moving their time spent, the account growth, mm-hmm. the comment count, and then more importantly, when I layer qualitative around the quant and see the affinity is very high, And I see that people are going all in on the interest graph, not just the social graph. And then I'm ready to kind of move. And so on a daily basis, I'm curious about the organic reach and the cost of media on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Spotify, and any other platform that will amass hundreds of millions of users on it. And then every individual execution in it. You know, it, doing great on Instagram has required analytical m- movement from the picture gets the most organic reach to the video gets the most organic reach to now it's a Reels that you put in feed, not just as a Reel. And so on a
1: daily basis, it is the framework of everything. That's awesome. All right, so I'm going to talk analytics with you. Uh, and y- you, you have been in it. Um, you champion the 80 million customers that you have. I'm sure it's growing by the second Um, what do you really know about them Michael and yeah yeah
2: yeah, well well, first I think the thing that actually took us like I I always like to look back and see what we got right and wrong the thing that was actually a great eye-opening experience for us is we spent you know kind of nearly a decade building our first business which was really the merchandise business we called fanatics commerce and we woke up and we, we realized we had a huge structural advantage to building the leading digital sports platform when we think about how to create all these different digital sports businesses um really our brand and our database were the most two important assets that we had and our database we we, we know so much about um each of our fans we probably have today between 15 60 attributes on average per fan we can really use that to, to really improve the experience and now when you think about it that we're going from our first business of merchandise and now we're adding training cards and NFTs and, and, and online sports betting and over time media, the ability to uh, really use data, to really personalize the experience and make the experience for each digital sports fan so much better is a great opportunity for us. I'd say it's probably, you know, the biggest advantage we have. And there's really not, if you really think about it, there's really not another company that wakes up and goes to bed obsessed with how to improve the digital sports fan experience and um, you know, I think um, data is really at the core of everything that we do. Uh, and obviously, look, you can't even build a merchandise business without you know. Look, our merchandise business this year is four and a half billion dollars. The original business we started in um and you, you can't build that without data being core to everything we do but when you think about now how we you know build this digital sports platform you know the, the again the biggest structural advantage we have is the database and the ability to use that to you know help improve the experience for each fan. So ultimately it gives us a reduced marketing cost as well we go out and we now acquire you know a fan in um, the commerce business and that fan's gonna you know buy trading cards from us and and buy nfts from us and and do online sports betting with us and do really each of the different businesses that we have. So it's, it's a huge advantage of one that, that keeps getting better every day.
1: Well, I think one of the things that I have learned from watching you is the vertical integration that you do. And so you've gone down, which you've done on the commerce side, and now you're going broad across, right, and taking that, which is, you know, obviously amazing. And the 50 to 60 attributes is going to grow because you have these other businesses. So it's, it's really brilliant. So obviously yesterday it was announced $27 billion. Um, valuation and you raised 1.5 what are the 1.5 billion just so we're clear what are some of the key things that you're thinking about in using that investment for
2: yeah you know you know for us first of all we don't really you know we're we're thinking about how to build you know that you know a a company that's beloved by billions of sports fans globally and ultimately you know i think you know valuation just follows the business results you know I, i think you know for us you know, one of thing that's very unique about us is I've been screaming, the way Gary screams about things, uh, and I think people eventually, you know, listen, I've been screaming for years that you need growth with profits. And so as a company, uh, we've been fo- one that's been focused on, you know, growing quickly, doing great things for the sports fan, but also making money the entire way. And so for us, all the money we raise is really from a, it's really to be used from an M&A perspective. To go out and buy pieces to kind of build our digital sports platform more quickly so you know this year alone we, we acquired tops um the trading card company which is you know kind of the most well known brand of trading cards to really enable a trading card strategy and pull forward four years we just acquired mitchell ness uh, a few weeks ago and so we like when we have a strategy we can buy pieces to kind of move more quickly and so that's um what we use all the capital that we raise for and we're going to look as a company this year we were you know you know, profitable last year, generate real free cash flow. We'll do it again this year in, in, a, in a greater extent. But all of that money gets invested either in how do we enhance the fan experience globally or how do we, you know, kind of buy capabilities to do the same thing.
1: I love it. All right, we're going to switch a little bit to personal brand. You guys both have pretty big personal brands. Gary, you're the master of it. So uh, how do you assess Michael's personal <laughs> brand? Where, where that's, that's definitely
2: pretty screwed up, for sure. Where is Gary his, Gary's responsible for everything I've ever done wrong, for sure.
1: Where, um, where is he
0: strong, and where can he improve? I, I think Michael's greatest strength is his self-deprecation. I, I think if you look at his content... There's a
2: lot to make fun of me about.
0: When he shares like videos of him playing basketball, um, that just sets the world on fire.
2: There's a, there's well, a, You should tell me when the big idea you just pitched me on just about 15 minutes ago.
0: I, I told Michael... I, I, so I'm a big believer that... Um, nostalgia is incredibly underpriced. And so for a long time, especially with the emergence of betting, uh, I've long thought that there was an opportunity for an OTT to come out called the Prop Network, where you would establish these uh, environments. I said to Michael backstage, I said, imagine how many people would tune into a pay-per-view of Magic Johnson versus Larry Bird, and there was betting dynamics on top of it. Well,
2: that's how you start You said- I know, I'm about to get okay. there. And we need to be honest. Um,
0: And I said, you know, but the big one that I want to see is you and DJ Khaled one-on-one. I think we can do do five million pay-per-view. And so I, I think what Michael, you know, for to be such a titan of business, for him to not take himself serious, show the brighter side of him. He's a massive inspiration for a lot of fathers out there with daughters with his content. This is stuff that people don't talk about, they don't see. My my I what I do for a living is basically read messages back to data. I'm basically a human anthropologist and do qual data all day long, constantly, even on a flight here, very early morning. I'm reading Direct messages and comments on stuff. So I think what he does extremely well, we obviously see him with the, the crafts and the Meek Mills and all that stuff that is so aspirational. But I think if you look carefully between the self deprecating nature of like, hey, yeah, I'm good at these things, but I'm not as great at these things, and just being an incredible dad, uh, mm-hmm. you, you see a big movement of dads tapping into their, you know, being dads of girls. And there's a really great movement on that. I think he's doing a phenomenal job on that. What he's doing poorly is a lot of things. Um, 26 <laughs> minutes, okay. Um, you know, a couple things. I think, you know, our fr- a lot of our friendship comes of the building blocks over the last decade. Saj knows, like, every time I would come across Michael anywhere, I'm like, Michael, you gotta start making content. He hesitated on it. In the same way that many people here have not bought their first NFT yet, that's just a massive mistake. Whether you think it's a fad or not, to disregard an entire movement is a mistake. Like, you've got to taste it. Uh, Even if you lose a thousand bucks, it's worth it. That's the education. You've got to taste things when they're innovating. And so I think broadening some of the platforms that he puts out his content because he's gotten comfortable with Instagram, but we need him to really expand his
2: horizons. Gary, who do you think would win in the one-on-one between Khaled and I? I think Khaled. I agree. I agree.
0: I think he, he would body you up. He would use his you know, he would just get you down. I, he still might miss a three-footer. He's, you guys are both atrocious.
2: <laughs> I'm going to, when I leave right, I'm going to call him and, and get the challenge on. It's going to be for a private competition, but I'm going to do it. I, think I, I feel inspired. Our next
0: all-in challenge should be those things where the, all the proceeds go to a, a non because I think people would really enjoy that. And I, and I really, look, you look at the big three, you look at some of these celebrity boxing matches, I think there's a a lot of evolution still to be done in sports. Mm-hmm. And I think we're kind of like having a laugh here, but I think there's a lot of opportunity in, people love competition. Yeah, You know, like people love competition and people fall in love with names. And a lot of times when these athletes retire or these people in pop culture, you know, Meek Mill making that shot the other day, right? For, yeah, I mean like that's stuff that people are fairly interested in. I mean, we
2: should be honest, I actually took the video hoping he was gonna miss the rim. I know. And that he actually went in was actually really impressive. He was really lucky. I posted that. I was really only good. (laughs) I posted a bad outcome, not a good outcome, but somehow uh, the basketball gods were with him.
1: I, I mean, I I love the banter so much, and I mean, that's pretty good advice. I enjoy your content. I think I'm personally like the dancing the most, Uh, but you have a good, uh, some good coaching before that competition. Um, So if you guys are thinking about the influence that you could have and potentially. you know, raising more funds as your brand. Your brand is amazing, obviously, and you understand how to do it. Great advice. What do you think, um, Michael, as your brand continues to, to rise in your awareness, what are the areas that you're most passionate about in terms of continuing to influence?
2: Yeah. So, so the first thing, I just want to go back for a second, because I think this is kind of a good, just everyone thinks differently. Gary consistently, I, I love to have people around me that I learn and grow from. It's like, the big thing I always say, like, I barely, I think people know this about my story, but I barely met in high school. I didn't go to college. So all of my learning goes from getting, um, you know, just, you know, a diverse group of friends that, you know, you can learn from. And, and we all learn from each other. You know, sitting in the front rows, Robert Kraft, who you know, I consider to be my younger and uh, more, more, less responsible brother. And, you know, I learn I learn from Robert every day. And Gary, I learn from you. But Gary's always been, he's always been, um, you know ahead of me on a lot of things he talked to me about trading cards years before we got into the business he talked to me about nfts before we got into the business for years he harassed me to go on social media like literally harassed <laughs> me i mean there wasn't a meeting where he didn't screw me about why i'm an idiot and just need to be on social media it took me probably four or five years later than what he told me to do but the interesting thing is one thing I believe, I actually really don't think, and people could say this is bullshit, but I'm just giving it to you straight because that's my personality. I don't think about building my brand. I just do what's comfortable, what feels right to me. And to me, that's the test I need to put things through. So there are a lot of things that, that people may say, hey, you should do this. But it just doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel authentic. And what, the things that I post are things that I want to promote. What we're doing with the reform alliance criminal justice organization we're building, or I want to, you know, promote something that that you know Daryl Morey is doing with the Sixers, or that you know we're doing with the basketball team, or I want to promote something we're doing at Fanatics, or I want to make fun of myself because actually I do like making fun of myself, and it's very easy to do. in those moments every day, day to do that with her. You know, I want to make fun of my daughter and just have fun with her. So, like, I really put, you know, I kind of the things I show are things that really feel authentic to me. And I don't like to ever push the envelope. And I sometimes think, for me, less is more. Um, I also, I look at a guy like Gary, and one of the things, you know, I love so much about him is he's so motivational to everybody, and his energy is, it, it, it just... He, he he pulls everyone with him, and that's a great thing. And you know, I think you know we have a lot of similar traits, but we're also very different. i mean, you know I kind of you know I motivate people in a different way, and he motivates people in a different way. But I think you know what's so incredible about what Gary's doing is he's got you know tens of millions of you know people that look at him and you know who who, who learn, grow, and, and really most importantly are motivated. And he's you know showing tens of millions of people how they can do more, or do better, and I think that's a great impact to have. For me, when I think about you know, the question you really asked, which I'm not getting to, which is you know, kind of, you know, what's the influence we want to have going forward? Look, I, am, I wake up and go to bed obsessed with how do I build you know, one of the most incredible companies in the world. I think you know, it took me a decade to kind of figure it out. and It's kind of cool when you say, look, mm-hmm. we focused on building this you know, you know, pretty respectable merchandise business over the first 10 years. But then we realized we had a much bigger opportunity, that there were literally billions of sports fans that we can become their beloved brand where they do everything digitally with us. And so for me, you know, I am hundred percent locked into doing that. And anything I do really, you know, I want to support that initiative and that, you know, kind of drive and, and, and that opportunity and, you know, everything else around it's just things that maybe I'm passionate about personally.
1: I mean you both are very inspiring. I mean I've mentioned twelve and a half multiple times. It I mean it really is it's really it's a great it's a great listen or read, but I've been Thank listening you. to it. So um, so thank you. Is
2: he for... read it himself in the in the in the book? Yeah. At what speed is, is it? Like a three minute listen because he does the whole book. I don't three know. Minutes. What
1: well what I like about it is that he'll he'll say okay I'm gonna go off script because I wrote this three months ago. I mean it's this, great.
0: This goes back to day trading attention right? Like yeah. things change every day. Yeah. And so I love doing the audio book because I do get to do the remix.
1: Yeah. It's 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 great. So uh, we're gonna switch to gambling now. Uh, Michael, you mentioned during the Super Bowl that you, could, you believe you can be the number one player in the space within 10 years, um, and you're currently not in that business. So that's a bold statement. What do you think are your competitive advantages over, say, DraftKings and FanDuel or Caesars or that way?
2: Yeah, so first off, um, you know, I actually, as I get older, and that's happening very quickly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, kind of, You know, you try to want to be bold internally and maybe a little less bold externally. Although you want things to rally people around. So for me, what I've always had is a really big vision. And then you can, like, will things to happen. And if there's, like, the number one thing about my personality is people always tell me this can't be done. This won't happen. And I think that's, like, complete bullshit. Like, I think come up with a really big dream, come up with a really big aspiration, put a stake in the ground, and just, like, figure out how you're going to do it. And that has worked for me time after time after time. And by the way, it's I'm not doing it on intellect. I'm not doing it on, on, on looks. Uh, definitely not doing it on looks. I'm definitely not doing it on physical physique. <laughs> I'm doing it on just like drive. And so you know, to me, when you look at you know fanatics and building this digital sports platform, you look and say, today we've built you know a nice and fast-growing business in our original you know model, you know fanatics commerce, and we've now just come and you know we're, we're now kind of building the trading card business pretty aggressively, and now the NFT business. And you look and say, does online sports betting fit into the digital sports platform? Of fanatics, I think 100% of people look at that and say, yes, this is like mm-hmm. a perfect strategic fit. Then you got to look and kind of assess the market. And, um, you know, right now the market's, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a huge long-term opportunity, but the market's not making as much sense, you know, in the near term. And I've been saying that pretty nonstop for the last, last year. So from my perspective, I think it's a perfect fit in our platform long-term. I think we've got huge structural advantages because we probably have the most digitally-oriented, you know, sports commerce brand, and we have this massive database which gives us great structural advantages, and then we have, um, you know, we have the, you know, financial wherewithal to, you know, kind of go after things in an aggressive basis. So, you know, I I actually didn't mean for that statement to come out publicly. I said it to somebody kind of in in passing, but I do believe we will be the number one player in the business in a a decade, and I believe we'll do it through um, smart and aggressive um uh organic growth and the structural advantages that we have in fanatics and then you know m a will you know you know a- as we've done in each of our businesses we've generally had an aggressive organic plan and then we've layered mergers and acquisitions on top of it yeah. to find businesses that fit well and we'll do the same thing here um and so this isn't a business by the way today i got to tell you something i mean the, the amount of money that's being invested or lost if you just put it in simple english today is like um you know it's you know there's money being lit on fire if we keep it real uh, and, that's, and, and by the way, we said that a year ago, I went to our board a year ago and said, look, this is going to be a massive space long term. Um, and I said in the near term, you know, I'm not quite understanding the economics of this business. You know, I generally try to make money on things that we do. It's a crazy concept. Um, But, you know, when I look (laughs) at companies, I like them to have a path to profitability and like them to make money. And I think and look, there there are some great operators in this business. Jason Robbins, who runs DraftKings. I love him. I don't like him. He's a really good friend of mine. He's a great entrepreneur. And, you know, maybe he's got, you know, just even more courage than I do because, you know, he's investing like, you know, crazy amounts of money. But I think, look, he will be a big winner long term. FanDuel is a great company. The offline casinos are good companies. I just think this is a perfect fit into our platform. And so, um, you know, I think we'll be very successful long term at it.
1: Well, I mean, at least from what I've heard, the cost of acquisition uh, for gambling is obviously very, very high, and you have acquired a lot of them. So we you- acquire
2: a customer for 19, 19 bucks in the commerce business, and, you know, average cost, cost to acquire a customer in, in, in uh, you know, online sports betting today is $500 on a good day. Right. And so, you know, I'd much rather, you know, i much rather look at all this, the, the different places I can acquire customers and then cross-sell them into online sports betting and then go out and spend $500 plus, you know, and have a multi-year payback that, you know, in a highly promotional environment.
1: Well, and and so we're talking about this, and you brought up DraftKings, so thanks for the the very uh, good segue, because you actually, Gary, do quite a bit with uh, DraftKings, um, a prop betting show. Uh, So would love
2: your perspectives. Do you recommend everyone to bet on the Jets in the show every week? (laughs) Uh,
0: Not this season, but with four picks in the top 38 – and with top five free agent money, and with a remarkable draft class last it was year, who's a yes or no question? The answer is I'm more I just optimistic next year. how much money you've cost year. people
2: on the Jets in the past five or ten years. I uh, suppose we having to be in Boston with Robert here. Let's just get this out in the open. I mean, <laughs> have you literally cost your tens of millions of, of people who really depend on you? Have you cost them hundreds of millions of dollars in the Jets?
0: I have not, because if you watch props and drops, I've actually decided to bet against the Jets the majority of this year. Because be when it comes to business, been. I'm unemotional. <laughs> As a fan, I'm very emotional. Um, so I think I've made people money.
1: Just had to get that out there. All right, so yeah, so you're, back you're giving him a hard time on the Jets. Okay, we get it. Um, you know what's happening with that, though. You have to
0: understand why it's so remarkable to be a Jets fan. because You learned to lose? No, because I think you know, it's very similar to the framework that you just said. For someone not to think that they're going to be the biggest player in the business that they're going after in a decade means they've lost before they've started. Like, why wouldn't you? It's one thing for the fans in the crowd to think something. What do you think? I think one of the great things about having real ambition, like, the amount of Super Bowls I'm gonna win when I buy the Jets are gonna come directly from jokes like this on stage. These are chips on shoulders. <laughs> chips on fucking shoulders guy, matter.
2: Guys, I just wanna say, get one thing out there. I will bet on you for everything other than Winning Super Bowls over the Crafts and the Patriots. Sorry, buddy. I
0: am going to win Super Bowls when I buy the Jets, and I'm going to play this clip, and I'm going to end it with, fuck you, Michael Rubin.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we should have a good wager that goes before one of us is uh, not on this planet. We'll see. Listen, modern technology,
0: like,
1: I've got 60 more years of damage.
2: (laughs) That's fair. All right,
1: well, let's get back to DraftKings. So why did you want to get involved?
2: There's a bet on DraftKings. Right now, will Gary win multiple Super Bowls? That's a Warg great idea. Planet?
1: All right. That's how you should launch your platform.
2: Perfect. Will you promote <laughs> is, it for me? 100%. Okay. Great.
1: Okay. Why did you get? I'm gonna just. DraftKings d- hired Vayner. H- so h-
0: my 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 agency, VaynerMedia. Yep. Back to like the way we both think, and probably why we have friendship is, when I started VaynerMedia 13 years ago, I was coming from the wine retail business, and I looked at Madison Avenue and I said, my God. These guys and girls have this all wrong; they are completely obsessed with potential reach and uh, just delusion of where the internet is about to take us and So I saw an opportunity to create a business and over the last thirteen years we 've built the largest independent agency in the world, and that is just facts and so Draftkings rightly decided to hire Vaynermedia for marketing and you know and then you know, to, to Michael's point, that crew, those founders, they're just good guys. You know, like Jason guys. really knows his stuff. And Kalish and I really hit it off because he loves to collect stuff. And, I, I, you know, we, we started talking through the business about collecting cards and things of that nature. And then he got very excited about the NFT space. And we just decided to do a podcast.
1: Okay, so then, you know, based on everything in your experiences yes. in growing uh, properties... What is your advice to Jason or Amy Howe at FanDuel on how to think about fanatics coming into this space?
0: They should be concerned because the, the reality is anytime you have a... Like, I have the most confidence that I'm going to build the best XYZ always, but to be delirious and not understand the competitive landscape is also a, uh, a dangerous strategy. And so I think I believe that what Michael is doing is the preview to what many great operators are gonna do over the next 20 years because the way technology is today, it makes all the sense in the world to go vertical and horizontal if you are capable.
2: See, I- and one thing I throw in there is, I actually think it's a really big space, so there actually is room for lots of great companies like DraftKings and FanDuel. That's not me just being politically correct. I really feel that way. And Jason and I talk about it all, all the time. Like, this, 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 this is a really big space. What we're looking forward to Is leveraging the structural advantages that we have at Fanatics to kind of build, you know, kind of a more integrated and, you know, kind of best experience for the fan long term. And truly global. You
0: you don't have to be as remarkable as Jason to hear, we're acquiring customers at 12 bucks over here and we're gonna bring them over here. I mean, I, I don't, you know, some things are just uncomfortably obvious, but this isn't about the strategy. It's why, Michael, I mean, I put out every strategy I have in the world publicly for free the second I come up with it. The reason do I do that is because most people can't execute it.
2: Right. So, by the way, and that takes courage, and it's funny. Mm. I, we, we come from the same mold from that perspective. I often say what I'm going to do, and I'm not worried about it because I think we're uniquely positioned to do it. And by the way, sometimes that's wrong, and you yeah. put your foot in your mouth, and you say, God, I wish I would have kept my yeah, mouth shut. Absolutely. But, you know, 99% of the time, I'm willing to tell people, here's exactly what we're going to do, and here's our script. And, you know, we feel based on the unique, you know position of fanatics you know we can do this better for the sports fan and so other people don't have that you know kind of inherent advantages that we have
1: well i you know so um i mean really insightful thank you very much i think we were talking about the jets for a second no it's a lifelong dream of yours yes. so you know you were kind enough to give michael some advice on his brand michael you have owned the sixers for what, 11 years now what are the key lessons? I mean, because I think it's going to happen. This guy is a force of nature. Uh, what are the key lessons that you learned that you want to pass on to Gary if, uh, if he actually goes on to own the Jets?
2: Well, first, um, I'm, I'm one of um, you know I'm, I'm one of and one of several owners in the group led by Josh Harris and David Blitzer. A great partnership, and um, we have been at it now for 11 years. I'd say the biggest thing that I think a lot of really smart. Um, new owners get wrong is they try to be overly involved versus picking the right people to lead the team We're we're fortunate enough to you know this conference is started by you and daryl and we're fortunate enough to have daryl leading our basketball organization and i think you know that's why we're a much better basketball team this year and you know i think to me um, what i've always taken the same philosophy that i had in business and applied it to sports which is get the best freaking people on the planet and then get out of the way Okay, and only be involved in the biggest decision. And Daryl will say he'll call me. He'll tell me about some something about some player I've never heard of, or something. I'm like Daryl, I don't care, don't even. I, why Why are you telling me this? Because I only care about the big things. What do I care about? I care about having Daryl leading basketball. I care about having Doc as our coach. I care about having Tad Brown as our CEO, and I care about having you know ownership stay out of the way, other than on the biggest and most strategic decisions. I think that's how you win, and that's actually not what a lot of new owners do. I, and, and I see a lot of new owners. You know, they're super smart, like Gary so They get in there. They want to be in the draft room and they want to be, you know, dictating everything that happens. And you know what they do? They generally screw it up. Um, so, you know, I'd say if you're actually fortunate enough one day to, um, you know, own the Jets, I'd say the biggest thing you want to do is pick the best people, be supportive of them, and not, you know, you know, to try to do their jobs for them because it never works. And the history of people trying to do the jobs of the people that, you know, they should be getting the best people to do it, it, it never works out.
0: My my strategy is when Would you I buy the or not? team. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, Be honest.
2: Be honest I'm, right now. I'm going to be the GM, be the head
0: coach, and the starting wide receiver. Perfect. <laughs> no, I think, I, honestly, I would think... Would you listen? Yeah, I mean, by the way, I'm actually more comfortable in that zone as well. Obviously, you know, when you're as passionate... You know, I haven't missed a play of a New York Jets game live. No DVR bullshit since 1982. Wow. So this is, like, foundational for me. I was born in the former Soviet Union. I would argue that Jets football was my kind of like American moment. It's a very big part of my life, so the discipline required to do exactly what Michael's saying, which is 100% the right blueprint. I promised my brother, AJ, who's 11 years younger than me and is gonna absolutely be on this journey with me, I said, listen, I'm gonna do all that, everything he just said, but I said, but the one thing I'm gonna need is I'm still gonna need to be able to pick the seventh round pick. I'm, an, I'm keeping that. Yeah. Now,
2: the, the, the one thing I, w- I will tell you is, is um, sports needs owners like Gary yeah. because that's the next generation. And for me, I'm actually going to a different place in my life. People ask me all the time. I actually, I'm 100% focused on fanatics. I will not be, you know, you know for me, my only involvement is, is the Sixers. I will not be doing anything incremental. Um, for probably the next several decades if it ever again in my life wow. I'm a hundred percent locked into making fanatics you know the most incredible digital sports platform in the world and I don't want any distractions from that um, but I actually think sports does need great owners and I think you know if every league could have you know incredible owners you know across the board it, it, it's gonna make it better for the fan. it's gonna be make it better 100%. for the, the players there's gonna be more money involved there's gonna be better product on, on, on the field on the court on the ice so you know I love that Gary wants to, you know, own a football team or own the Jets in this case. And, you know, I think that, you know, the, the sports leagues can't have more, can't have enough great owners.
1: Well, so I think what you're saying is the Jets need an owner.
2: What? No, I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> um, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that, that I think Gary would be a good owner of a sports team.
1: All right. Well, uh, one of the... do get me in trouble like that. I, know. What? I was kidding. It um, was a good try, though. Thanks. So. Oh... <laughs> One of, uh, one of the things that I admire about both of you is um, that you have started so many different businesses and in so many different verticals. And so I'd love to get a little bit of perspective. Of what is the difference between being a serial entrepreneur versus a one-hit wonder?
0: Uh, talent. <laughs> like, that's just real life. Like, I think, you know, first of all, being a one-hit wonder is something that should be cheered more often. I've had interactions with a lot of people who've only had one big business win or only had one hit record, like that's hard. That's hard. I'm on a board of a company yesterday and we were talking about a situation and the outcome might not be as great but the outcome is a 0001 percent success. So I think talent is one. I also think it's DNA. I think Michael gave you a really interesting insight to why things work for him as an entrepreneur around his content. He said, I can only do things that feel comfortable. I have so many friends who've accomplished so much more financially in business world who always tell me that I do too many things, that I'm doing too many things. You are. And, and, and I say to them, that's great if your KPI is to maximize your financial output. My KPI is to, to maximize my happiness.
2: Yeah. So and but my, I'll debate that for a second. Tell you, I'm more happy locked in and focused right that's now, exactly right. Right now 's 'm exactly focused right. on making that, Fnacks the most incredible company I, remember, I can. Uh,
0: that's exactly right. And I think that's amazing. Um, for me, I need the creativity of doing some other things alongside with my cores. I need the side dish. I need the amuse-bouche. I need that. That makes me happier. And so I think for everybody out here. It's a game of self-awareness. I think people, a lot of people only have one hit because they try to run the same blueprint they did the first time,
2: but the world changes. So I need you doing multiple things, too, because you make me smarter. So the good thing is you <laughs> go out there and figure it out and then you just help me, and that's what, you know, dumb guys like me actually need help with, so it's, it's perfect. You know, I'll tell you, it's also about what people want. I was with somebody over the holiday break who started a company. Three or four years later, they sold it for $20 billion. They had less than 100 employees, and they said to me, I don't want to do this again. Like, you know, I'm... I'm thrilled with what I'm doing. So, you know, for me, I'm gonna work my ass off every day until I die because I have fun. That's what I'm passionate about. I wake up, I go to bed, I'm excited, I love the action. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have it. Like, I would literally, like, I would be like looking at my phone waiting for action. Now, (laughs) you know, now I wake up and go to bed exhausted every day because I have too much action. So, you know, it's all about how you're wired. I mean, you know, there are people, you know, some people, you know, money is a main objective. I don't even care about money. I care about, like, competing, competing, winning, having fun, learning. And, you know, by the way, if you do care about money, it will always follow if you care about those things. If your yeah. main objective is like, I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to compete, you know? Innovate. Yeah, you want to innovate, all of that together. The money does always follow, but I don't care about it at all. I just care about like maximizing every minute of every day.
1: Well, pretty like-minded uh, and very successful folks. That's great advice. I'm um, going to take uh, questions from the audience. We We have had a lot of great discussions, so I think we're only going to have time for one. So um you guys have both alluded to the impact of the blockchain uh on sports and so i think w- that's a positive i would like to see- hear one area we've talked about ticketing so put that one aside where you think it could be used but also what is the biggest threat right now to the sports industry
2: biggest overall threat or biggest threat from blockchain
0: go with the overall threat 1st yeah, i'm curious what you think
2: yeah um look i think every industry changes radically and, um, you know, I think, you know, I think sports is the greatest entertainment in the world, but we got to keep making it more relevant and we got to keep keeping it fresh and innovative and, you know, and so, you know, for me, I think it's, you know, continue to innovate and if you don't, you die. And I think, you know, look, things that were relevant become less relevant. You can't take anything for granted. So I'd say the second you become complacent in sports, I think you're you're dead. And so what I'd say is you got to keep pushing on getting better, changing, evolving, better, satisfying the fan. I mean, I look every day, I don't look at what we do right, I look at what we're doing wrong. Like, what can we do better? So they gotta take that same mentality toward-, toward I,
0: I think there's you know, something interesting teams. there though, because I think the way I would answer the question is similar to macro, micro. We talked earlier about blockchain versus NFT projects. There's nothing threatening sports. And here's why. If you look at the history of man and woman, it is like music and other aspects, it's going to be there forever. The threats sit in the micro. Super Bowl I did not sell out. The 82 NBA finals were on tape delay in America. Esports is real. Pickleball is taking market share from tennis. So the macro of sports is forever. The people that are vulnerable are the people that just think they're sport. Boxing and horse racing and baseball dominated 1945, and that's two seconds ago. And so what you see is complacency when you're the league or the sport that's dominating the day, which is why innovation comes along. You know, MMA versus boxing in 1978 in America, which is, again, five minutes ago, is not even a conversation. The the first one didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. So I think what you look at, to Michael's point, is there are a lot of leagues at the top across the paradigm of sports globally, calling the top 25, that are incredibly vulnerable because they are absolutely in a framework of selfish behavior, not selfless to the fan, innovation. And coming up with the times, and I think that's the more exciting thing to watch play out over the next 20 years. The leagues that lose market share and the leagues and personalities and sports that emerge out of nowhere.
1: Amazing points across the board. So this, I'm so sad that we're at the end of this time because I really would want to talk uh, with you for much longer. But I, I want to bring it all back together at the end, a couple of the learnings. From today, the NFTs are going to crash. <laughs> um, you have to create value, extra value, uh, for when it goes down for your fans. So a huge focus on relationships, the fan, um, you know, authenticity, being human. taking advantage of the contract of the utility, taking advantage of the contract of the utility, blending quantitative and qualitative. Having patience, it's gonna take 10 years or so to figure it out. Most people can't execute. And lastly, have fun and learn. So thank you both so much for kicking off Sloan. This has been an absolute pleasure.